Good morning, Livingstone Church. This is Pastor Josh, and I'm so glad you can join with us to worship our risen King on this Resurrection Sunday. As I mentioned last week, there is a particular sense of longing, of realizing that we are missing something, especially as we can't gather this morning. And I'll come back to that thought in a minute. But again, I want to encourage all of us during this time, let that longing for community and the fellowship of the saints face-to-face be something that causes you to seek the Lord more wholeheartedly during this time. But before we prepare our hearts for worship with our call to worship, I do want to share a couple quick announcements with you. First, our weekly congregational check-in Zoom calls will be continuing. This week it will be on Monday at 7.30 p.m., and it's the same link that we've used for the past three weeks. There will be an email reminder sent out with the link for that call. Next, this is our community group week, so check with your community group leaders for details about your group's meeting. Well, I said that there is a particular sense of longing, especially this week during Holy Week, and today, as millions of Christians around the world are unable to gather on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And I don't think that any of us could have imagined this. I remember Easter Sunday in 2015. It was on April 5th that year, just a week prior. We were less than a month away from leaving our home in China, where we had spent nearly 10 years. And we were gathered that Sunday with our house church in our apartment. It was mostly foreigners with a few local Chinese believers But I remember walking into our kitchen at one point and being overwhelmed with sadness as I realized that on the most significant Sunday of the year for Christians, that we were separated from our local Chinese brothers and sisters because of government restrictions. Now please hear me. In no way am I comparing our current situation to the type of persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing in China and other parts of the world. And I'm not making any political statements about our government, just to be clear. But I am saying that I never imagined that that sense of sadness I felt that day would be experienced on this side of the globe, back home in America. And I am sad. I'm sad that we can't be together. And not just on this special day, but that we haven't been able to gather for four Sundays now. And probably for several more to come. I don't like that, but I'm seeking to trust the Lord's wisdom more than my own, and I'm continuing to pray for all of you that you will press in and seek the Lord with all your heart during this time that we cannot be together face to face. Though it's not the same, we still believe that the Lord is with us. He is with us as we gather in our separate locations, even at separate times, to declare together that He is still on His throne. That he really is who he says he is. That his word is true and that our hope ultimately is found not in our ability to make sense of what is going on, but in his sure and steady promises to us. It is on those promises we stand. And it is with a reminder that he is with us that we respond to him with our call to worship. This is a call and response. I will read the celebrant portion, and you can read the people portion together with me. Hallelujah! Christ is risen! The Lord is risen indeed. 
The chains of sin and death have been broken. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Now we are free to serve God without fear. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Let us shout to God with songs of thanksgiving, for he has done marvelous things. Hallelujah! Christ is risen indeed. The Lord is risen indeed. Let us pray. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. God, we thank you that the chains of sin and death have been broken. We thank you that we are free to serve you without fear. And we pray that this morning as we gather together in our different locations that we would shout to you with songs of thanksgiving for the marvelous things that you have done for us. That we would remember what is true of us in Christ. That we would celebrate and live out the realities of the new resurrection life that we have because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that your promises are true. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and mighty name. Amen. Let's continue to worship as we sing, Christ the Lord is risen today.
two we sang, Where, O death, is now thy sting? Reflecting Paul's questions in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And though we rejoice that death is swallowed up in victory, and that the grave does not have the final word, we still are confronted with the reality that death is the last enemy to be destroyed, as Paul said earlier in that chapter. I was saddened this week to learn of the deaths of a friend's father and a family member's father. Our resurrection hope does not wipe away the earthly pain and sorrow. It does not fully eliminate the effects of sin in our world and in our lives. That we still walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That the world around us is fearful and more aware of death because of the coronavirus. That ought to cause us to be honest before the Lord about our sin. To bring it to Him and to confess that we need Him. There's nothing new here. We keep hearing the word novel used to describe the coronavirus. But there is nothing novel, nothing new or surprising about sin. It is our constant foe and we must constantly live lives of confession and repentance. So let's do that together this morning in this call and response as we go before the Lord confessing our sin both individually and corporately. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God of mercy and all grace, on this day we celebrate the resurrection of your Son from the grave. We are reminded that it was for our sins that Jesus died. It is as if we ourselves helped to drive the nails into his hands and feet. We have lived by our own strength, and not in the power of your resurrection. We have lived by the light of our own eyes, seeking our own pleasures, ungrateful for your gifts. We have lived for this world alone, and cared little for our home in heaven. We have said, thought, and done things we know we should not, and left undone things we should do. O God, You are full of grace and compassion and patience. Hear us now as we individually confess our sins to you. Take some time now for silence, for self-examination and personal confession. Merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, for the sake of the suffering and death of your Son, Jesus Christ, be gracious and merciful to us, and forgive us for these and all our sins. Grant that we might open our hearts to you in faith, turning from our independence and trusting in your word. Grant that through the power of the Holy Spirit, who raised your Son from the dead, we might cheerfully do your will, both now and forever. 
Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is our Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead, and all those who are united with him by faith are assured of that same resurrection hope. Hear this good news from 1 Corinthians 15, 12-22. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. Let's continue to worship as we sing, Christ is risen and I will rise.
my 
For our affirmation of faith this morning, I want us to look to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, questions 36 through 38. These three questions all address the benefits that we receive from Christ. They address the already and not yet realities of our faith. Question and answer 36 addresses the already. I will read the question and you can respond and read the answer back along with me. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. I love this answer because it takes some big theological terms, justification, sanctification, and adoption, and tells us what we actually get from Jesus because of those things. The first three things are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Notice the fruit of the Spirit there, love, joy, and peace. These are things that are daily needs in our Christian lives. But then I love how it says, increase of grace and perseverance to the end. We need that reminder that in the day-to-day grind of life, that we are not just standing still, spiritually speaking. God is working in us in increasing measures of His grace, day in and day out, and He will cause us to persevere to the end. We need that reminder that it doesn't depend upon our efforts to make it to the end. Then the next two questions and answers deal with the end. First, with our end in death, and second, with the end end at the final resurrection. And these are our not yet promises that we have to look forward to. Again, I will read the question and you respond and read the answer along with me. Question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Question 38. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Answer. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Brothers and sisters, these are promises that we can rest in that not only at our death, But at the final resurrection, we get Christ. We are united to Him and we get to be with Him forever. Praise God. All right. Well, it's time for the children's message now. And kids, I know this is really different for you. Uh, This probably isn't as Exciting is being able to come down to the front of the church and sit with your friends. 
And I want to say that I really miss being able to see all of you and to worship the Lord together with you. It just isn't the same without all of you, and I'm really hoping and praying that we can all be back together soon. And I also want to talk to you a little bit about why Easter Sunday is important. If you've been able to go for walks with your family around the neighborhood, you've probably seen decorations on people's houses for Easter. There's Easter bunnies and eggs, uh, maybe signs that say something about Easter. Maybe you got some chocolate candy in the mail from your grandparents or from friends. And all of those things are fun, but that's not what Easter is really about, is it? We celebrate Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday to celebrate what Jesus did for us by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. I want you to imagine if on your birthday your parents bought a cake and they bought presents and wrapped them all up and then instead of letting you blow out the candles and eat the cake and open the presents, they gave it to your dog or worse yet, to your cat. Sorry to all the cat lovers out there. But that's kind of what happens when we make Easter about something other than Jesus' resurrection. So I wanted to share this question and answer from the New City Catechism with you. The question is, what does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Can you read the answer along with me? For those of you who might not be able to read yet, your mom and dad can help you to read the answer. Let's read the answer together. Christ triumphed over sin and death so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. You guys, this is great news. We can have hope of new life both in this world, meaning when we trust in Jesus, we get new life from him, and everlasting life in the world to come meaning that we will be with Jesus forever because of what he has done for us. Remember, that is what we are celebrating today. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for these kids. I thank you for your love for them. I thank you for placing them in families where you are known and where you are worshipped for who you are. We thank you for the resurrection hope that is true for all of those who put their trust in Christ. Lord, I pray for each one of these kids that they would do that, that they would trust you alone for their salvation, that they would trust that you are the only one who can conquer death. You are the only one who can give them new life and hope of a future resurrection. Thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your grace, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And the title of the message this morning is Facing the Uncertainty with Certainty. Uncertainty is a word that has been thrown around quite a bit in the last month. When speaking about the coronavirus situation, there is just a lot that we don't know. Consider a recent article in USA Today by Aaliyah Dastagir, titled, We all want to know how the coronavirus pandemic ends. How do we cope with uncertainty? Her opening lines are, No one knows how this ends. The uncertainty may be as unsettling as the virus itself. 
As the U.S. imposes restrictions to save lives during the global coronavirus pandemic, people are agonizing over one question. When will normal life resume? She then explains the psychological effects of this uncertainty when she writes, Psychologists say uncertainty is unsettling because human nature demands predictability. Predictability. People count on it in daily life, in the structures around them, to function. When they don't have it, they can become uncomfortable and insecure. She then quotes a clinical psychologist who says, The things we rely on for stability in our lives are all under siege. Our brains are designed to predict what's going to happen next and to try to prepare for it. In this case, the response isn't that clear. But uncertainty is nothing new or novel. We are not the first generation to face the fear of an unpredictable future. I read last week for our confession of sin from James chapter 4, where God, through James, wisely tells us, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. That's uncertainty, and we face it every day. He goes on, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is such a needed and healthy perspective right now for the whole world to hear. And here it is in plain black print, staring humanity in the face for almost 2,000 years. He continues, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. This is wisdom in the face of uncertainty. Instead of saying with certainty that we know what tomorrow holds for us, saying, if the Lord wills. Now, I'm not actually suggesting that you start saying, if the Lord wills, every single time you talk with someone about your future plans. That might be a little over the top. But is that our heart attitude as we think about the future? Even now, in the midst of unprecedented uncertainty on a global scale. Or consider Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. He tells the crowds not to be anxious about their lives what they will eat or drink, or about their bodies, what they will wear. Then he reminds them that God provides for the birds of the air. And of how much more value are we than the birds? And he closes his charge to them by saying, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Aliyah Dastagir said, No one knows how this ends. From a human perspective, she's right. We don't know how this ends. And that's okay. As Christians, do we not rightly claim and hopefully also believe that there is one who knows how this ends? The one who tells us that he declares the end from the beginning? 
And regardless of how the coronavirus ends, we do know how it all ends. We've been told plainly in the scriptures. And I can't think of a better Sunday on the calendar than Easter Sunday for the world to be reminded that the ending has already been written. Literally. We have an entire book at the end of our Bibles that gives us certainty regarding the end. In the first chapter of Revelation, John sees Jesus in a vision. And John falls on his face as a dead man. But Jesus lays his right hand on him and listen to what he says. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now I'm getting a little ahead of myself because this isn't a sermon on the book of Revelation. But it is helpful to fast forward to that scene so that as we rewind the film back to Luke chapter 7, we have a little context for where this whole thing is going. Luke 7 begins a new section in Luke, containing most of the next three chapters until Luke 9.51, when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Now we'll be in these chapters over the next couple of months, and we'll be seeing Jesus interacting with sinners and outcasts. We're also going to start to see hints of victory over death. Jesus will start to mention his own death, and he will talk about taking up our cross and following him. So again, it's very fitting for Easter Sunday that we kick off this section with these two glimpses into who Jesus is and what he came to do. Remember, we know how the story ends. But we need to put ourselves into the shoes of those people who are encountering Jesus for the first time in the midst of the great uncertainty that they are facing. So let's go to God's word together. Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, 
and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is good news for our souls. We thank you that in the midst of this uncertainty, we can stand certain upon your word. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear from you this morning as you speak to us through your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this first scene is on the heels of Jesus finishing all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, referring to the sermon in chapter 6. Now Jesus enters into Capernaum, where he has preached in the synagogue and cast out a demon from a man. We saw that in chapter 5. There the crowds were amazed at Jesus' authority and power, and it says that reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So Jesus would not have been a total stranger as he and his disciples roll into town here. And we are introduced to a centurion. This was a Roman officer who was in charge of about a hundred men. His servant is sick and at the point of death, and he cares deeply for his servant. So he sends a group of Jewish elders to Jesus, asking if Jesus would come and heal his servant. And before we look at how these interactions unfolded, Let's consider the relational dynamics at play here. Remember, this is right on the heels of Jesus' sermon, where he has just said, Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. We already know from Jesus' sermon in his hometown of Nazareth in chapter 4 that opposition against him was mounting among the religious leaders. And certainly, while under Roman occupation, there was no love toward those who were viewed as enemy invaders. So these dynamics here are very interesting. This interaction between Jesus here and the religious leaders and the centurion reveals some deep fractions, some deep cultural mistrust and and social mistrust. So they come to him here in verse 4, pleading with him earnestly. And listen to what they say about this enemy officer. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Look at their claim. They say he is worthy for Jesus to come and to heal his servant. What is their basis for making this claim? It's twofold. First, they say he loves our nation. Second, he built their synagogue. Now, I think it's highly unlikely that this enemy soldier really loves the Jewish nation. 
He may have been a kind and generous man, which is likely if he footed the bill for the building of the synagogue. But regardless, these elders are basing his worthiness on external things. Joel Green, in his commentary, says, Their words, the elders' words, betray their captivity to a world system whose basis and practices run counter to the mercy of God. In other words, Jesus has come and introduced a new worldview. He has flipped the whole world system on its head, and he puts that into practice here as he goes with them. No questions asked, no objections raised by Jesus about the possibility of even going into the home of a Gentile. Jesus doesn't argue with them either about their inaccurate assessment of the centurion's worthiness. He doesn't say, why would I have mercy on some outcast Gentile? He simply goes with them. And while he's on the way, the centurion balks. He sends a group of friends to Jesus to tell him to turn around. Now, why would he do that? It's because he knows something that the Jewish elders don't know. He knows that he's not worthy. And he understands authority because he himself is an officer who is under authority. He recognizes Jesus' authority and therefore simply, and with the faith of a child, asks Jesus to say the word and heal his servant. Jesus' response to the centurion's request is interesting. It says he marveled at him. Now we're only told that Jesus marveled at something twice. The other time is in Mark 6 when he is rejected at Nazareth. It says he marveled because of their unbelief. Here he marvels because of the centurion's belief. And he turns to the crowd and pronounces this indictment against the children of Israel. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. In the parallel passage in Matthew 8, Jesus adds that many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a direct challenge to their current social and religious structure. The question is, how do you get into the kingdom? And the answer is, not by loving a nation and its people. Not by building a house of worship. Those things don't make you worthy. Those things don't get you into the kingdom. There is nothing that makes us worthy. True faith is confessing that we are completely unworthy. This centurion and his servant are two very unlikely recipients of God's mercy and grace from the perspective of the religious leaders. The centurion's faith is affirmed, and the servant is healed and saved from near death. Now, as much as I could say, be like the centurion, that's the message here. I don't think that's actually the message. He's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. If you want to be like the centurion, then simply confess your unworthiness. But then turn from focusing on yourself and look at Jesus. He's the one who welcomes us in. 
the outcasts and the poor, the ones whom the world despises. And do you know what we say to the world in return? That's okay, because we belong to a different kingdom, and our king reigns victorious over sin and death and the puny little king of your kingdom. Hating us, despising us, even killing us. Is that all you got, world? You want to scare us with the threat of uncertainty? Bring it on. Our God reigns. Well, if the uncertainty and the potential loss to the centurion wasn't enough to grab our attention, I hope this next section will. Two great crowds meet at the gate of a town called Nain. Jesus' disciples and the crowd following him from Capernaum, they're on cloud nine as they've just witnessed Jesus heal a guy from near death simply by speaking. And whether they realize it or not, they are in the presence of the one who created the world simply by speaking it into existence. Contrast that with the other crowd. Friends, loved ones, Neighbors of this young man who has died. They are all there to support his grieving mother, a widow who has already lost her husband and now has to bury her only son. Her support network, in worldly terms, has been taken from her and she is now destitute. Now we don't know how long before this she had to bury her husband, But the scab is now ripped off the wound, and she has to stare death in the face once again. As these two crowds collide, they are about to witness something that has never been seen before. Jesus sees this grieving widow, he has compassion on her, and he speaks two simple words. It's only two words in the Greek, and you can just make it a contraction in the English. Don't weep. This is a command from Jesus to this woman. Not a suggestion. This is a command. Don't weep. There's no long explanation here. There's no weeping of Jesus like there was when Lazarus died. He doesn't know these people personally. Not to suggest that his compassion is any less sincere. But the point here, unlike the raising of Lazarus, does not have to do with Jesus' personal connection with these people. The point here is his power and his authority over death. In Capernaum, he just healed someone who was on the brink of death. Now he goes a step further. He's going to display to these two crowds something that has never been seen before. Now you might say, wait a minute. Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. And you're right, they did. In fact, the Elijah story in 1 Kings 17 has some striking parallels to this one. But do you remember that story? Elijah had to carry the young man upstairs where he cried out to the Lord. Then he stretched himself out three times on the child and cried out to the Lord again before his life was restored. Contrast that with Jesus here. All Jesus does is touch the stretcher that the young man is being carried on which in itself would have made Jesus unclean. So again, Jesus here is pressing against all kinds of social norms. And what does he do? 
He does not go the Elijah route with long prayers and stretching himself out on on this dead body. He simply speaks. Again, we see that the power and authority are in Jesus' words. Young man, I say to you, arise. Now you have to wonder what the crowds are thinking in that moment, don't you? The crowd that came with Jesus is probably thinking, no way can he make somebody who is already dead come to life. I mean, healing the centurion's servant from near death is one thing. And the funeral procession crowd has to be thinking, first of all, who is this guy and how dare he come and interrupt our time of mourning and tell our dear friend not to weep when her whole world has just collapsed? And why did he just touch the stretcher? And who does he think he is trying to tell a dead man to get up? But before any of them could even say a word in response, the young man sits up and begins to talk. And all the doubts and the questions in their minds suddenly melt away as they are seized with fear and they glorify God. We saw a similar instance in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the paralytic after his friends let him down through the roof. It said, Amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now here the verbal response is different. The crowds say, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Now they're probably thinking about Elijah and Elisha when they call Jesus a great prophet. And their comparison is not a bad one. It's just that they don't really know who they are dealing with yet. And when they say God has visited his people, this is certainly not a claim on their part that Jesus is the Son of God but that God has come to their aid. The word visited in some translations is, God has come to help his people, which is a good translation. But regardless of what they know about Jesus at that time, the question for us, as the reader, is, who is this prophet who has come to visit and to help God's people? If you were reading Luke's Gospel for the first time, Then you got to the end where Jesus triumphs over the grave himself. You would go back and read this story with new eyes the second time. But before you even got back to this story, something else might jump out at you. In chapter 1, you would read Zechariah's prophecy with new eyes. Where he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You might just see that this entire storyline of the Bible finds its center right here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one promised way back in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the serpent's head. The offspring of Abraham, through whom the blessing would come to the Gentiles, so that they might receive the promised spirit through faith, Galatians 3.14. The one of whom Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The promised son of David, who will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever, 2 Samuel 7, 
13 to 16. And the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, but who will see his offspring and prolong his days, in whose hand the will of the Lord will prosper. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10. And here we are, 2,000 years later, in the midst of this so-called uncertainty. While the world around us continues to mock and ask like they did in 2 Peter 3, 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So where is the promise of his coming? It's right here in his victory over the death of a servant in Capernaum and a widow's son in Nain. And it's in the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies that we just mentioned. And it was ultimately in his own dying and rising and promising that he would come again for his people. He will visit us again. He will make all things new. His own resurrection from the dead seals the deal. And you can take that to the bank. So how do we face the uncertainty of our times? With the certainty that God has come to visit his people. That Jesus came and lived and died and rose and sent his spirit to live inside of us. Face the uncertainty of the times indwelt by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Close with Romans chapter 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for sending him to live the perfect life that we could never live. We thank you that he died in our place on that cross to take our guilt and our shame and our sin upon himself. That he rose again to justify us to reconcile us to you, to give us his righteousness, that we might stand before you without shame, without fear, that we might be called sons and daughters of God, that we might be filled with the Spirit, that we might look forward in hope to the resurrection of our bodies. That we might look forward in hope to the day when all uncertainty is wiped away forever. That we might look forward in hope to the day when you are with us and we are with you forever as your people. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love for us. We pray In Jesus' name, amen.
as deep in we do but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do do you wish that you could see it all made new we do Is he 
Is he worthy? Is he worthy?